This episode is sponsored by the Financial Due Diligence Framework Course. If you're doing any type of financial analysis and participate in M&A, strategy, or turnaround projects, you absolutely need to check out this course. By completing this comprehensive video course, you'll be strongly armed to analyze the P&L of any company and to be able to provide actionable, insightful reports. This course teaches you how to properly understand the methodology of how to conduct thorough financial analysis and what is important in financial due diligence. If you're looking for a career in transaction services in one of the big four, in a transaction services boutique, or to be a better private equity professional or M&A associate, you'll get a solid foundation to land your next job. And as a special offer, if you use the code SASDistrict, you'll get $100 off the entire course made specifically for our listeners. So if you're interested, go check out horizoncapital.com slash learn due diligence. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Akil Jabbar, and welcome back to another episode of SaaS District. In today's episode, we'll be talking about the top scalable customer acquisition strategies after you've developed your SaaS product. Today, we have our guest, Dan Maga, joining us. Dan is an award-winning entrepreneur, speaker, and the CEO of Maga.io, an analytics and marketing technology consultancy, as well as a SaaS platform called UTM.io. Dan is also a 500 Startups mentor and has previously started the first business accelerator in, our, in Orlando. He's a thought leader in the MarTech world and a CXL instructor on the topic. Dan previously served as the head of marketing at Kissmetrics, as well as worked as a CMO consultant for a number of high growth companies, implementing tools, offering support, and analyzing their data. So welcome, Dan. Super excited to have you on the SaaS District Show today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So Dan, I want to you know kick it off, getting deep into the weeds, all about you know customer acquisition. You know that's a, that's always a problem SaaS founders are having. Uh, so once a new SaaS founder is you know has, has developed their product, they want to get their first customers, obviously, and they want to know how much they should be you know planning and budgeting for to, to obviously get the highest returns. What would you say you know from your experience, or maybe one of the most effective ways to get, let's say, your first ten clients, and then what is it for the you know next you know say hundred clients? Yeah, really, really good question. And you know, I know most people are not going to like my answer here. Um, honestly, first 10 clients, you should be selling face to face if possible, right? You mm-hmm. should be trying to learn as much as you possibly can uh, to get those people sold. And you know, um, I run a successful SaaS company, UTM.io. Um, and you know, I still talk to customers all the time uh, on Zoom calls and all that stuff. And I think people forget how powerful. Um, sales is and how important it is in the beginning stages of the process because you need that feedback, right? You need to have these conversations with people um, and figure it out. And, you know, my, uh, I think, what is it, like four companies ago? It's kind of uh, funny how I think of uh, four companies ago, but um, mm-hmm. I, I used to own this company. It was called Take In Social Media. Uh, and I started with, I had a co founder, and we basically were building Facebook uh, fan pages. And this is back when Facebook was like the hottest shit 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went door to door 
um, to hundreds of businesses uh, to sell the product. And it was super cheap. It was meant to be a SaaS product online. Um, but we went door to door to small businesses who are our target market. Um, and we sold accounts and we learned what was good. We learned what was bad. And um, it was the best way to do it. Um, and it's still, it honestly still is. And I think most entrepreneurs and startups get scared of that. But mm. that being said, first 10, I would sell them hardcore. Um, However, you can get your first 10 customers through sales, I think is important. Um, on the flip side, when you're trying to go from 10 customers to 100 customers, and you're really trying to scale that out, I mean, naturally, every business is different, right? I have buddies who take $0 businesses and make them million dollar businesses through Facebook ads, right? So like, right. if you are like a godsend at doing that stuff, like use your superpower. Um, mm. But if you're really trying to find the most cost-effective way to scale the business, even to 100 customers or 1,000 customers, content marketing by far is the cheapest, most longest-lasting um, return on investment you're going to get. I mean, I have a blog post that I wrote four years ago, which still brings me 8,000 visits a month and still drives revenue for me. Um, mm. That blog post took me six hours to do. Uh, and it adds to our site, right? And we keep putting out blog posts like that. And we keep we invest a lot in uh, content marketing and SEO. Um, and, but you have to understand that the the cycle is longer, right? It extends the cycle, but it's definitely much much cheaper. Um, but at the same time, if you're a godsend to AdWords and Facebook, I mean, blow the money if you can. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. So just from a you know budgeting perspective, you know, obviously the first ten clients should be you know essentially free. I mean, your own time into it. And then after that, you know, you would take you know the, some of that revenue from the ten first clients and start reinvesting that back into, you know, let, let's say in this case, probably content, right? You know, writing SEO content and and hopefully the you know you know whatever it is, the backlinking or SEO, all the above. Right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, you want to make sure that you get good content out there. And mm. uh, don't get me wrong, it's content marketing is not easy either, right? Mm. Um, you really have to. Uh, learn it. I mean, if you were to go to Google and type in um, my last name, Maga, and then um, how to build a lead generating SEO strategy um, mm-hmm. or content marketing strategy, excuse me, uh, you'll find a blog post on our site which breaks down how we do our our dirty SEO work um, and how do we do really really cheap SEO research to come out with articles. Um, and it's not a hard process, or it's not like a revolutionary process. It's just. Um, we have a. You just have to get it done. Uh, it's really that simple. Yeah, yeah. I love SEO. I mean, that's probably what generates probably eighty or ninety percent of our own leads. So I, I understand. Um, you know, and if if you're a SaaS founder, right, you have this money now. You've got these ten clients, or maybe you raised a bit of capital. Uh, how do you kind of decide? You know, where you should be investing. You know, whether it's customer acquisition or versus product, and you know, kind of leading that product led growth. Because I know you have a SaaS company. You also have a consultancy, so you probably have to to make those kind of decisions. Do you, do you have a framework on how to tackle that? On whether to go product-led growth or like a, another way? Yeah, like how, how would you invest it? Like, you know, you have 100K, would you go, you know, full-on customer acquisition? Do you go 50-50 or, or how do you kind of decide where you should spend that capital? Yeah, really, really good question. You know, I think you have to obviously look at the opportunities you have and make the best decision on that. The equation for us always comes down to like, where are we going to get the most return on our investment? Uh, and mm-hmm. what is going to be the fastest way to grow revenue? Um, you know, I think there's a lot of people who want to do product-led growth, and that's really what they want to focus on. Product-led growth companies, though, are heavily dependent upon venture capital um, and really, really dependent on getting a VC to believe in the product and do that. And, you know, 
Um, I'm not the type of person who likes investors. I don't want VCs necessarily involved in my companies. I've had my mm. fair share of boards mm. that I've had to put up with. Um, mm. And I think there's an overemphasis on, oh, I've got to work with these VCs because I want to be product-led growth because it's cool. Um, yeah. I, I think at the end of the day, a lot of people get caught up in their ego uh, compared to um, what is best for the business. And you know, product-led growth is hot. So I'm going to go that way because I want to be cool. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, if you have a naturally viral product, or if you've ever read the book, uh, hooked by Nir Eyal, and you have a product which is able to create its own flywheel, absolutely go ahead, try to do everything in your power to have product led growth. Um, but I would definitely choose my bets wisely. I would definitely, in my, my opinion, right. If I had a hundred grand to blow, um, even in my company now, and I'll just use UTM.io, which is a, we are definitely a product led company. Um, people sign up for a product and yes, they get it demos and stuff like that. Cause it's an enterprise solution, but we definitely focus most of our effort on the product, not on acquisition. If I had a hundred grand to blow, I would probably put 75% of it right now into acquisition. Um, okay. The product's at a point where we can acquire customers. And if we can acquire them fast enough, we'll have a payback, which will enable us to build more products. Um, and that's really because our product is, um, one, it's free for most users. So they don't have any money, right? So they're not going to give us money. But our enterprise deals are five dollars or $10,000 a year. Well, if I get five enterprise deals right at $5,000 a month, that's $25,000 paid back. So, and to acquire those customers for us is really not all that expensive. Um, we have great SEO and great content marketing. Mm. Um, so like that's helping fill the hopper. Um, mm. But right now, I mean, I would make the decision of um, one, we need to hire um, uh, an account executive uh, mm. who would help do outbound sales. Um, so I think in every business, it's going to be wildly different. I mean, I can't answer the, the question uh, plainly. I wish I could. No, no, that, that's a that's a good answer. Uh, you know, if, if so, let's let's look at this way. How, how would you calculate the true cost per acquisition if if you're you know splitting it amongst so many channels? You know, one, mm. you know, e- easily with paid, but you know, uh, you, you can kind of measure input output with SEO. You know, you mentioned you did this article, it took you six hours of your time, and uh, you know, you, you know, years ago, is that all your you know you would consider the cost? Or for example, we talked about before the podcast doing guest podcasts, right? You think so? You did about fifty this year. Uh, you know that takes a lot longer. How do you truly measure that that CAC when it's going to take a while before you even see that? Yeah, you know, I think we do things a little bit differently at our organization. Um, we everybody here tracks their time. So at all of our companies, uh, everybody tracks their time using Harvest Time Tracker, and then they track it back to certain um, projects and as well as certain categories. So as an example, right right now I'm on this podcast. I'm recording my time to uh, Maga Marketing, and then uh, the task is content marketing. So I'm able to track where all of my time goes. So um, and, and same with my team. So in a month, what I can do is look back and say, Hey, you know, I spent this amount of time, and I know what my my time is worth, including all these people. And this is how much money we spent on content marketing. And then out of content marketing, this is how much we know that we gained out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and we can, of course, see the gains uh, in our analytics tool and tells us exactly how much we had. And then we'll process those numbers uh, in Google Sheets to make sure that like, we have a, a performer on it. Uh, we track a lot of that stuff in our financial models. For people who don't necessarily like track their time, it is definitely a little bit harder uh, because mm-hmm. you don't know like labor. You know, I think what's crazy to me, and there, we, we, we track our time. I remember when our VP of sales came here. My VP of sales uh, is Rockstar, was head of sales at Linux Academy before they got acquired, uh, was head of sales at Ion Interactive, which is Scott Brinker, you know, the guy that makes the MarTech landscape. Uh, that was his company, like uh, Ace worked there. And I remember Ace's first day being like, hey, 
you're going to have to track your time now. And having to get over that. And it took him three months, but now he's able to look at the data and be like, holy crap, I can see where my time goes and uh, see what he invests in. Uh, and it blows me away. Your most expensive resource as a company is labor, but we don't track their time, right? We don't track what they're doing, where they're going, how they're using it. Uh, and mm. if you can be more efficient with time, you can make a shit ton more money. So we definitely use labor uh, as a huge equation in our cost per acquisition. Obviously, it's in our CAC model. Um, mm. But for CPA, uh, we do try to track it back to our SEO efforts. Um, I have used a product called Attribution App. Um, attributionapp.com, a uh, really, really good uh, multi-touch and linear touch attribution product uh, that enables you to do ROAS and you can import numbers into there. Uh, we have used that in the past to measure return on ad spend and as well as return on effort from SEO channels and stuff like that because we can see the true mm-hmm. revenue coming back from those channels. Interesting. I've never heard about that. I'll have to, I'll have to check it out. And then how would you... What To you, what? how do you define a successful customer acquisition campaign? Like, Is it... you know? Uh, one to one, two to one, three to one return, or is it just as long as it pay back? Or, or what's your you know definition of success there? Yeah, really, really good question. You know, both of my businesses are focused on growth, so we're really looking to be able to break even on whatever we do. Um, so, sense. like at the end of the day, we're really trying to push that lever. Uh, on growth, so like we're really looking for just getting our money back uh, in in the simplest way. Fa- the simplest way, um, mm-hmm. we're trying to basically capture market right now. So I wouldn't say that we're in a blitz scale mode because like we're not that funded, um, mm-hmm. but we're definitely trying to make it so that we can capture as much of the market as we can. So. Um, I, I will definitely say with uh, UTM.io, uh, that table is turning a little bit more. But we're more focused on maximizing um, the payback on that. So um, I think over 2022 is when that's really going to uh, dig in. Um, but yeah, right now we're just focused on getting paid back. On Magal.io, you know, I think um, the payback for us is really, really easy because we're doing six-figure deals. So yeah. um, we may spend $10,000 to acquire a customer, but um, our margin... And I'm not going to say that public on a <laughs> podcast. Uh, we have a really good margin. We build good margin in. Uh, we build inflation in. Um, but we definitely get payback multiples on uh, Magal.io just whenever we do uh, a deal just because um, people love us. We, we provide a really, really good service. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, you get one, one deal out of all this, you know, makes it all kind of worth it. Um, and so for early stage companies, I guess there's, there's a lot of things that are more crucial, right? The, the time of execution and then balancing your time for product and marketing. And I think you mentioned you'd probably spend a lot of your time in, in growth and marketing. Marketing. What, what are, would you say are some other maybe top mistakes that uh, you see happen with you know, working with a lot of founders and maybe they should avoid, at, especially at the early stages? Mm, good question. Um, you know, I've already said, like, I think most founders focus too much on VCs and trying to raise money. I think it's really, um, once again, that's ego. I want to be on tech crunch and all that stuff. People need to stop focusing mm-hmm. on that. Focus on generating revenue. I mean, um, it, Magal.io in our first year, we accidentally started this company. We never meant to start an agency. It literally just happened. And don't get me wrong, I give complete credit to the fact of like, I've been doing this for 20 years. I was the former head of marketing at Kissmetrics. So like, don't get me wrong, like it, it was easier for me. Mm-hmm. Um, however, in our first year, we did $500,000 in revenue. Now, we didn't get $500,000 in revenue because we went and raised investor money. No, it's because we took all the, the effort that we would have to go get investors and we went and did sales. Right, mm-hmm. like, and we went and did cold calling, and we went and did all kinds of other things. So I think if people would focus more on generating revenue compared to generating funding, uh, you'd see a big difference. The next thing that I would say that I see most founders really mess up is poor time management. Um, 
really, if you start by scheduling out your entire week on your Google Calendar and knowing um, this is what I'm going to accomplish this week and this is what I'm going to accomplish today, and it's all scheduled on your calendar, and you do that diligently for three months, you would be amazed by how much more work you can get accomplished. Um, <laughs> everybody who has ever worked at my companies, um, this is a standard process that you have to do. Um, and it's mandated that everybody does this. And everybody who's ever left here has been like, man, the time management skills that I have now are through the roof. And this is going to help me through the rest of my career. So I think that is definitely a really, really important one. Schedule your entire week and your entire day. Put it on your calendar. Know everything you're going to do. And when you don't get something done, that's okay. You can move it over, but schedule your time. Um, I think that's a, a really, really, really big one. And then... Um, the next thing is that I see most founders, they're waiting for it to be pretty or they're waiting for it to be perfect. They're waiting for it to be nice before they show a customer. Um, honestly, I was on a demo with UTM.io, um, which we've been around for a few years. Um, I was on a, a multi-billion dollar company as a client of ours. And I'm doing a demo. And in the demo, I had to specifically move around where I knew there was bugs. Right and where I knew there was issues, and no matter what, I still got hit with like three three stupid things in the middle of the demo. Um, and this is like a big demo where the clients already paid us ten thousand dollars a year. Uh, yeah. We're just introducing to another team, and I was like, "Hey, listen, like it, uh, I'm really sorry that we had to face this bug. I, I'll get right on this with the development team, and don't get me wrong, I did, um, but I'm not afraid to get something out there that might be a little bit buggy um, to to get people started." Um, mm. And I think people are waiting for pitch perfect. And it's sometimes it's like, just your baby's ugly. That's okay. It's still <laughs> cute. It's just ugly cute. Um, get it out in the wild and let people tell you it's ugly because then you know what you need to do. Uh, I think people wait too long. They're too, too intimidated. Um, and and I, I'll add one last thing to that. And this is something I'm doing with my kids. Fail. Fucking fail. I ask mm. my kids at the end of every single day, what did you fail at today? Mm -hmm. Um, and they don't, they're uncomfortable with it right now, but when they're 25, they're not going to be afraid of failing. Um, uh, and it's really, really important. I think people are afraid of failure. They think that only they can be a success. But the, the thing that I try to focus on is the faster I fail and then have an improvement, I've made success, right? Because improvement mm -hmm. is success. And most entrepreneurs and most people are, are kind of intimidated of failure. They try to be too perfect. And it's like, listen, just go fail. The faster yeah. you do it, the faster you know where you need to improve. Um, yeah. But make that improvement. If you don't make the improvement, fuck off. Yeah, exactly. I like that. <laughs> Be proud to fail, right? I mean, the, the proud. Everybody's proud to show results and you know how much we've grown. But you know, it's obviously easier to to fear the failure. And I think you're you're right. It's easy to hide behind your product or the computer or whatever it is you're you're building until you think it's going to be perfect and it'll get all you know all the results just by putting it out there. But yeah, I think that's I agree. It's the wrong move. You have to. Uh, you have to learn. You have to learn quicker than uh, waiting six months before releasing, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, trust me, yeah. I still I still experience issues with Uber and Facebook and all of the big brands all the time. That's true. That's true. Um, so don't get scared. Yeah. Well, what about when it comes to scale? Like, uh, you know, we talked about some of those, you know, other scalable channels. Um, for you, what what are some scalable channels that you like, and when do you know it's time to, to really hit, you know, hit scale, whether you're funded or not? Yeah. You know, every every company is going to be different based upon like what's going to help them scale. Um, and I'll try to give a little bit of an example of how some contrasting things. So um, every business is going to have a different way that they need to grow their business. Their customers are different. Their personas are different. So it's going to be different. And you know, one of the hardest companies I've ever worked at was probably one that I learned the most at. 
Um, I, I used to be the head of growth at a company called CodeSchool.com. And everybody probably has heard of like Code Academy. And that's because Code Academy helps beginners. In Code School, we helped intermediate to advanced developers. So our customers were Google and Apple and GitHub. Um, like they even paid us to build courses for them. And then they would, um, of course, have that rolled out to the public. So um, the problem when working at a, like a developer school, and we were all online, is that developers hate marketing. Um, they don't like advertising. Mm-hmm. They don't like being marketed to. They think marketers are the devil. And honestly, the reason why it was such a hard job was because I was surrounded by 30 engineers who thought I was a mean person or a bad person because I was a marketer. Okay. Like I was right. in business and marketing and they just thought I was the devil. Um, when all I was trying to do was to grow the business so we can all get a paycheck, which luckily I did. But the problem with that is that developers don't like marketing. So we couldn't advertise, right? And when we did advertise, it just wasn't as effective as we would like. We got a lot of pushback. So we really had to figure out how do we get our customers to tell other customers about that. Um, And one simple hack, which will work on any online education school, was that at the end of every single lesson, so a typical course would have like 10 lessons to it. In that lesson, um, you would accomplish something. And at the end, we would give you a badge. And then we had social share widgets, which would say, why don't you share this on social media with your friends? Now, um, typically, people will put Facebook and Twitter on there, right? Um, And Mm -hmm. Twitter got used like crazy. But one of the things that we knew is we saw that program was successful. People would share the badge and it would drive traffic for us. And this was a, a very, very scalable method for us to get people to brag about something they accomplished, promote Mm -hmm. it to their audience, and then that audience would come in and then test out our product. Now, the problem that we identified with that is that that product added hundreds of thousands of users uh, over the years uh, to the the service. And that was super helpful and was pretty scalable. But we noticed there was a key problem is that if I'm Joe and I share, hey, I just... I got my badge on Ruby on Rails, whatever, and somebody comes back to the site, we had no way for you to get a free trial. Um, we had no way for you to like just jump in and test things. So mm. what we had to do was create one, you got the first lesson for free on all the courses. So you could do the first lesson for free if you gave us your email. So that helped. Um, but then you were kind of roadblocked. So um, we did some science to figure out when do people typically subscribe. And usually people would subscribe within their first 8 to 12 hours. Mm. Um, so we said, you know what, for every person who signs up, but does not pay us within the first 24 hours, we're going to send them a two-day free trial of the entire product. And we're going to call it the Hall Pass. Okay. And in this Hall Pass, you get free access to the product. So you get to experience the stuff. But we also created a referral program off of that. So we give you two days free of the product. But if you then gifted somebody else two days for free, we would, and they accepted, you would get an additional two days on your trial all the way up to 30 days. Well, I can't market and advertise our product because people don't like marketers. However, if Susan signs up, likes it, gets a hall pass, and then shares that with her friends, Sally and Jason and a bunch of other people, I'm not doing marketing now. They are. So now the Mm. developers will actually sign up. And that started a viral loop. So it built its own flywheel and scaled out the product. So we're talking, we went uh, 500,000 users came through that program uh, in a six-month period and had a humongous impact on the business. so in that business, right, the most scalable way for us to grow was through referral marketing and figuring out the viral loop. Now, don't get me wrong, that mm-hmm. wasn't easy. Um, yeah. It took us a few months to get the, the viral loop right. Like it was not, everybody always thinks that like, oh, we launched these and oh, it's a failure or it's a success and they give up. No, we, we spent four months trying to figure out how to make it work. Um, yeah. And we did. Um, so much so we were acquired by Pluralsight for $36 million, um, about a year later after that program because we were just, hmm. we were able to grow. But that's, 
that's a specific use case for that business. That same right. exact use case would never work for my company, UTM.io or Maga.io, but it worked in that use case. So I think it's hard to answer that as a blanket question, but mm. I'll, I'll defer back to what I find to be the most successful, most cost-effective channel to scale any business is content marketing and SEO. By far, it is the lowest cost with the highest return um, but it takes a lot of work. It's not, yeah. it's, you have to be consistent. Uh, and the last thing I'll just add to that, and this is uh, something I think it goes, uh, that goes unsaid in marketing. You know, marketing is not a diet, it's a lifestyle. And most people think they're going to scale their business because they did this one thing and it's going to work out forever. And it's like, no, it's the people that do it every morning at 8 a.m. and do marketing for five years. Those are the people that scale their businesses out. Um, it's, not a, it's not a diet that you do at the end of the year. It's something you have to have as a lifestyle and do all year long. Yeah. Yeah. I, lo- I love that. Yeah, I love that. The viral marketing, like you said, and you're, and you're probably only talking about the, the success, right? You said, hey, it took us six months. And we finally got this flywheel that, that worked. But, you know, there's probably 90% of those experiments that you were testing out of like, you know, playing around that, that didn't work, right? So, um, yeah. Oh my gosh. You- <laughs> I remember getting in so much trouble about it too, because it wasn't working. Like when we first yeah. launched it, there was all these issues, there was these bugs. Then we got hackers who took advantage of it. Then we couldn't figure out the time delays of notifications. Like it was frustrating. Uh, but, you know, uh, we, we knew how much money we put into the, we invested around $10,000 in labor to get the initial program up and running another $10,000 to optimize it. Uh, and we're talking about labor costs. So how much, uh, we paid, um, and yeah, it, it ended up being fairly successful. And don't get me wrong, uh, they shut it down eventually because we reached such um, like scale and growth at that point. We didn't need uh, referral programs. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, no, it definitely was good. Yeah, I mean, listen, we got an exit out of it, so I'm not, I'm not complaining. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you, you say it's still the same content marketing SEO, even you know after you've kind of hit product market fit. Kind of the. T- you know, with a uh, good question. I mean, if you have product market fit, right? Um, it all depends on what, what your product is, right? Some products definitely need to be sold, right? And that that really comes down to the product. So if your product is a solution where you need to be doing outbound, you need to be contacting people, when you have product market fit, that just makes your life so much easier because you can do outbound, you can do advertising, um, which makes it really, really good. But the the, the cost from an ROI perspective to compare to your content marketing is definitely much, much, much different. Um, when you write one blog post that can bring you hundreds of thousands of dollars of business. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's a lot different than um, hiring a BDR and an account executive who has to like hit the pavement. The, the numbers work out to be much different. Yeah. yeah I mean, I've heard of some B2B SaaS companies with their entire, you know, they've built up something like 10 million ARR and they've done like zero marketing, just kind of whole entire sales team. But I imagine, you know, if they have, you know, an inbound lead coming in, like your, your conversion rates, you know, warm lead who already has been consuming your content for a few months, knows who you are, is a lot, you know, more fun to, to try to close versus, you know, a cold lead who, you know, doesn't want to talk to you, right? Um, yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, and you got to remember, if you're selling a $10 a month subscription, right? Like, you don't need a sales rep. If you're selling a $10,000 a month subscription, you need a sales rep, right? So each business right. model is going to help you dictate that. Um, and in our business, right, especially, you know, even at Kissmetrics, when I was head of marketing at Kissmetrics, we were driving 600,000 users a month to our blog, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, tons and tons of traffic. A lot of people didn't even know we had an analytics solution. They just knew that we were a badass blog. Um, and that was a failure uh, that I tried to change when I became the head of marketing there. Um, 
But sales was so overwhelmed with inbound leads <laughs> that we didn't really have to do anything else. I mean, we're talking like when we were at our prime, we were do- driving 45,000 or excuse me, 4,500 um, free trials a month, right? Uh-huh. That's a lot of free trials. Um, mm. Sales could not keep up with it. 30 person sales team was overwhelmed. We had to pull out uh, lead prediction services and stuff like that. So if you can build the content machine, it, you, you don't even have to, you need the sales reps just to take orders. Mm. Yeah, exactly. That's that's the funner part. Uh, just one quick question on the the SEO side. Um, so you know, you kind of get that advice that you know Google actually cares less about you know the technical side by meaning you know doing the keyword research, optimizing for for you know keyword, uh, you know the, the amount of frequency, meta tags, all that stuff, versus uh, you know just focusing on good content. How much do you weigh you know the technical side versus versus the other side when you're creating your content? I would say it's probably about 50-50. At the end of the day, you need quality content, which other people are going to link to, right? I mean, link backs are still the the biggest thing you need. And quality content is going to get link backs. Um, so, and Google can tell the difference between an organic link back and like you buying links in many cases, like they're not stupid. Um, Mm. So, but you know, I think if you, you've got to have a good technical, uh, foundation though, um, because if your site's slow, if you've got all kinds of issues like that, I mean, it's just going to kick you at the knees, but I Mm. definitely think you need to focus on your keyword strategy. What are our semantic keywords? Like what's the keyword clusters and stuff like that. I still think that matters, uh, tremendously, Mm. but if you Mm. push it too far, the reader can tell, especially in my space where like I'm, I'm selling to VPs of marketing who have been in marketing, digital marketing for 10, 20 years, they can totally see keyword stuffing, right? So yeah, yeah. you have to make sure that you, you have a good balance of it. Um, but I would, I mean, I would say it's, it's a 50, 50 split in many cases, if not 75% focused on quality, 25% focused on the technical stuff. Um, nice. So, but uh, yeah, I mean, we put out, I mean, if you were to Google, what is marketing operations? I mean, we're one of the number one search results for that. I mean, we're outranking HubSpot right now in regards to like, what is marketing operations? So um, mm-hmm. it's not easy. I, I, I will say that whenever, when you get into like the real SEO game, it, it gets a little bit more difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Uh, so kind of final question here, Dan, around kind of the, the more technical stuff and then want to shift gears to be, you know, on the, on the more personal side. Uh, which is the second part of this this episode. So I know you're you're a little bit of an expert on this. You've worked with you know thousands of different tools and and tech stacks. Um, you know why are SaaS companies failing to build the right tech stack, and what are some actionable actionable strategies to overcome this problem? I believe you have a book on this as well, right? Yeah, to, uh, I've totally forgotten my book. That's embarrassing. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I wrote the book Build Cool Shit, which is your modern uh, blueprint to building a MarTech stack. And actually, you know, something fun for everybody who's listening. If you pull out your cell phone, I'd love to get you a free copy of my book. If you go to your text messages, uh, I'm going to tell you, um, you're going to want to text the word MarTech to this number. So the word MarTech, M-A-R-T-E-C-H. If you go to your text messages, you're going to text the number 415-915-9011. I'll say it again. 415-915-9011. 415-915-9011. And just text the word MarTech. And this is going to be a text bot that we've created using Autopilot and Twilio, which will collect your first name, your last name, your information, and all that stuff. Do what it tells you to do. And at the end, you'll be able to get a free copy of my book, uh, which will, will kind of help you build your stack. You know, there, there's a couple problems we're seeing right now in, in the marketing technology industry. One, we're all overwhelmed with tools, right? So like, don't you're not the only one who's overwhelmed. I, I get overwhelmed too. <laughs> the problem that we see is that many people are getting getting, um, they're buying the shiny object or they're getting sucked in by, as as I call the hype sauce, right? These sales reps and these companies, including some of our partners, right? And I'm not going to name them by name. They are so good at sales and marketing that they are overselling 
people who buy the software. And mm-hmm. as a director of marketing or whatever, I'm listening to the hype sauce and I'm like, oh man, this is great. But I don't have, as the director of marketing, I don't have the knowledge that half of these features that I'm paying $10,000, $20,000 a year for, I'm not going to be able to use for three to six months or even 12 months. It'd be better if I added it on in six months from now or added it on a year from now. But you, mm-hmm. you get so caught up by the shiny object and oh, it's going to do all these things. Never once thinking in your head, do I have enough labor to roll this out? Um, mm-hmm. Do I have the team who is smart enough to accomplish this project? Do I have the CTO buy-in, right? A lot of people just buy things without really thinking about how am I going to implement this? How am I going to integrate this? How am I going to get this rolled out? How are we going to adopt it? Mm-hmm. Um, and they wind up buying a solution. I mean, I have one client now that spent $20,000 in 2020 uh, last year on a subscription for a tool that they didn't even get set up or use correctly. <laughs> um, and then I'm being pulled in by the vendor to pull a Hail Mary and turn that account around. So, you know, I think people just overbuy uh, without considering what can they actually accomplish. Uh, they get caught up in the hype sauce. And then the second thing that we see as a big problem in the stack and with companies is they don't buy tools that integrate well or that they know how to integrate. Um, the first thing you have to make a decision on, you, your stack needs to recycle its data. It needs to constantly be sharing data with itself and different tools and things and all kinds of stuff. So you need to buy tools that are well integrated or can be integrated well with other solutions. And Zapier is a great solution to do that. But at the same time, if two platforms can integrate directly together, even better. Better. So um, integration is huge. And a lot of companies don't think about the integration phase at all. Um, is this tool going to integrate or can I even integrate it? Uh, and I think that's probably the second biggest uh, mess that we see. And you know what? I'm thankful for uh, both of those mistakes uh, because it's what keeps me uh, <laughs> doing a lot of business at Maga.io. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, love it. Uh, any favorite, uh, you know, marketing tech stacks that you like, or any any softwares you'd, you'd recommend? You know, top two or three. Oh yeah, I mean, by far my favorite analytics product is Amplitude. Um, it's totally free. It's not the easiest to implement on your website, but Amplitude is enable you to do the behavior tracking and build profiles about your customers and kind of see what's going on. Definitely Google Analytics on steroids. Um, Amplitude is part of the reason why I don't work at Kissmetrics anymore because Kissmetrics product could not keep up to what Amplitude was doing or Mixpanel for that fact. Um, I'm a super, super big fan of Autopilot. Um, Autopilot, which is a marketing automation tool. There's two versions of it though. The old product, which is Journeys, is still one of my favorite products ever. Um, but they're not supporting it like they used to, but you can still get access to it. If you email me, dan at maga.io, I can get you uh, hooked up with Journeys. Love Autopilot Journeys. That's how we built the texting bots, how we do all of our marketing automation. But their new product, which is specifically designed at small businesses, if you go to autopilothq.com, it's one you'll see. That thing's got artificial intelligence uh, installed with it. It will write your emails for you. It will come up with subject lines. It will do. It will even tell you, hey, you've uh, you've launched two new blog posts on your website. I've created a newsletter featuring those three. Would you like to approve it so I can send it? Um, that type of efficiency uh, from AI is super, super powerful. So uh, Amplitude and Autopilot are two of my favorite tools right now. Nice. Love it. Thanks for sharing that. We'll add all those into the show notes for people to to check out. Thank you all for listening in to this episode and joining SaaS District today. Don't forget to leave a review and subscribe for future episodes where we interview top leaders in the SaaS industry. If you're a SaaS company looking to grow and unlock the true value of your business, get in touch with us at horizoncapital.com. And myself or one of our consultants will provide a free assessment to help you get there and hit your goals. If you have any feedback or suggestions for this podcast, please DM us on Instagram or LinkedIn at Horizon Capital and help us improve our content for you all. 
Thanks again and hope to see you on the next one.